Thank you for listening to the Reformation Bible Church podcast. We hope you are edified and encouraged by our ministry as you listen to our Gospel of John sermon series. For more sermons and resources, please visit the RBC website at www.rbcbakersfield.org. Thank you once again, and may the Lord bless you. Will you pray with me this morning? Lord, we come together one body. We come for the sole purpose of glorifying your name this morning. That is why you have awoken us. That is why you have given us a voice to sing praises to your name. And Lord, just as we did that now, as the word goes forth, prepare our hearts, prepare our minds, prepare our eyes and our ears and our souls for what you have in store for your people. Use me, Lord, for your honor, for your glory. Let your people not hear me or see me, but hear and see you, Lord. I pray for all ministers who are speaking your truth this morning, who stand behind the pulpit to declare and defend the word of God all across this world. It's amazing how, Lord, you can use broken vessels for your honor and for your glory. And I pray that this morning... I will just be the means by which you bring your word to your people. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So I have a couple questions for you all. Question number one. Was Clark Kent Superman? Was Clark Kent Superman? Question two. Was Bruce Wayne Batman? Was Bruce Wayne Batman? Question three. Was Peter Parker Spider-Man? Was Peter Parker Spider-Man? Now one of the greatest things about superheroes is their secret identity. That is why I love superheroes. That's one of the great things about Halloween as we get to dress up as our favorite superheroes. And for a day, we pretend that we're that superhero, and then at night, we're really that superhero. That's what keeps us intrigued, and that's what keeps us as fans. I have another question for you all. Is Jesus God? Is Jesus God? Did Jesus have a secret identity that he wanted nobody to know about? Is Jesus like Batman and Superman and Peter Parker? I was even going to say, was Yoda a Jedi Master? But I didn't want to be too nerdy for you guys. But upon first hearing, is Jesus God? If we took a poll in this room, about 99 to 100% of you would affirm that Jesus is God. It's, of course he's God. Upon hearing the question, I'm sure you said, that's a ridiculous question. I know he's God. Now, the way you've come to that conclusion that Jesus is God would be an interesting one to talk about. Some of you have come to that conclusion by way of tradition. Maybe you grew up as a Catholic or a Christian, and you were told and you were taught to believe that Jesus is God. That's just what we do. That's just what we believe. Grandmama taught it. She believed it. Mama taught it. She believed it. Daddy. So on and so forth. Others, however, have come to that conclusion, like myself, by reading books and reading the scriptures, examining the scriptures, and and being convicted of that truth, looking at outside sources. And yes, while... Others have debated over the centuries the reliability of the Bible. Is the Bible true? Is it false? Can we trust the Bible? Uh, Others have debated the resurrection of Jesus. Did he really rise from the dead? Others have even debated the Genesis creation account and even the existence of God. The question of, is Jesus God, is the most crucial to understanding Christianity. Now, of course, not everyone believes that Jesus is God. About 
56 of Americans only hold that Jesus is God. In a recent blog on the website, TurnToIslam.com, they list 10 reasons why Jesus wasn't God. Let me give you three. Number one, Jesus was not all-knowing. Jesus never said that I am God. Jesus' believers did not believe that he was God neither. The famous apostate, Bart Ehrman said, during his lifetime, Jesus himself didn't call himself God and didn't consider himself God. And none of his disciples had any inkling that he was God at all. In fact, Bart Ehrman, I don't know if he still teaches there, but he used to teach at North Carolina. And the first thing that he would say to his students was, raise your hand if you're a Christian. And the majority of people raised their hand. And then he would say, my goal this semester is just to disprove every single thing that you believe in Christianity. People like Muslims and Jews would say that Jesus was just another prophet. Atheists and skeptics would say that Jesus was just a great teacher and a great moralist. Jehovah Witnesses would say that Jesus was the first created being of Jehovah God, and before that he was Michael the Archangel. Mormons would hold that Jesus was once a man, and he elevated himself to Godhood. I even asked Siri, do you think Jesus is God? And she said, I'm not equipped to answer that question. When I asked her why, she responded, well, I don't know. I've wondered that myself. The modern-day church, the modern-day Jesus of the modern-day church has been lowered to the status of best friend or what I like to call super Jesus. Has anyone ever heard of super Jesus? Okay. I don't know how I made it up, but, but super Jesus is basically Clark Kent. And most of the day, most of the time, during the day, He's just Clark Kent. He's goofy, he's funny, he's silly. Um, he's someone that you can tell your secrets to. You don't really pay him much attention at all. He's just that man. But then when you really need him, then he turns into Super Jesus. Just like how they do Superman. The question of, is Jesus God, isn't a question deriving from 19th and 20th century thinkers. But it's a question that has been highly debated for centuries now. It's a question that has been debated since Jesus was here on earth. You remember in John 4, 29, after her encounter with Jesus, the Samaritan woman runs back to her village, and what does she say? Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. And then she says, can this be the Christ, Christ being Messiah? In John chapter 7, at the Feast of Booths, we see the confusion over the people, over who Jesus is. Some say that he is a good man. Others say, no, he is leading people astray. Others say that this is really the prophet. Others say that this is the Christ. Then they question, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Even the guards that were sent to arrest Jesus said, no man has ever spoke the way this man has. If Jesus is just another prophet, if Jesus is just another great moral teacher, then we have no right to follow him and call him Lord. We can glean some things from him, we can learn some things from him, but no way do we wake up Sunday morning to worship him. But if Jesus is something more, and since Jesus is something more, if Jesus claims not only to be the Messiah, but God, then it's worthy of our consideration, whether or not it's from your tradition or not. This morning, I want to answer the question, is Jesus God? And this morning, we will not look at outside sources. We will not look down church history and try to figure out what the early church fathers thought about the question, is Jesus God? But instead, we will look at an eyewitness account. One who was there, one who's seen it all, and one who loved him. Amen. And unlike Batman and Superman and Yoda and even Spider-Man, 
who hid their superpowers and their identity. That's not the case when it comes to Jesus. Because not only did he claim that he was God, but he also proved that he was God. And he wasn't afraid to say that he is God in front of the most hostile crowds. The question of who is, or the question of is Jesus God should be a question that all of us should answer at one point of our lives. But this morning, we have the great privilege because we will allow Jesus to answer that question for us. So this morning, I have three points for you all, for those who are tracking. Point one would be Jesus defends his deity. And we'll see that in verses 22 to 29. Point two, the Jews deny Jesus' deity. We'll see that in verses 31 to 39. And point three, the people affirm his deity. So Jesus defends his deity. The Jews deny his deity. And the people affirm his deity. Will you stand with me with the reading of the word? John chapter 10, verses 22 to 42. The word of the Lord says, At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colony of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you don't believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Verse 31 the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself to God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, the scriptures cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him and he escaped from their hands. Verse 40, he went away again across the Jordan to a place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. You may be seated. So let's first look at Christ defends his deity. Christ defends his deity. We'll see that in verses 29 22 to 30. Now, we have to first understand the setting. And anytime you come to a passage in the Bible, you need to focus and understand the setting, the context of what's happening, where's it taking place. So, the setting in which John is writing is Jerusalem. And Christ, Jesus, is now observing what is called the Feast of Dedication. Now, you won't find this festival in the Old Testament because it's not there. As you know, there's three types of feasts. This one is not mentioned. The Old Testament doesn't mention it. It's not a biblical feast. However, it's an historical feast. And at this feast, according to most commentators... They say that it was first appointed by a man named Judas Maccabeus. And it was to commemorate the purging of the temple and the rebuilding of the altar after the sirens were driven out. The other name for this feast is called Feast of Lights. But there's another name for this feast that you might be familiar with, and that is Hanukkah. So this is Hanukkah. Once a year, people would 
people in December would light lamps and, and light candles in their homes for eight straight days. And like how we have seen Jesus fulfill every Jewish feast, here is no different. At the Feast of Dedication, Jesus comes and fulfills what these Jews are observing. Andreas Kostenberger argues in a theology of John's Gospel and Letters that John writes a little after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD as an appeal to Jews struggling in the new environment to make sense of religious practice. Now let me put that in English for you guys. As you know, Roman guards, the Roman Empire, destroyed the Jewish temple in 70 AD, leaving the Jews nowhere to worship. Kostenberger adds, while many at the time turned from a temple-based worship to a Torah-based worship, others still anticipated the Messiah's coming to overthrow the occupation and rebuild the temple. John's gospel is then an appeal to those looking for a new temple, to look at to Jesus as the new temple. This is why John highlights Jesus' prediction to show this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. So what Kostenberger is saying is that the Jews were looking forward to the day when the Messiah would come and he would rebuild the temple. This is long after Jesus has been gone, and John is saying that these Jews are still waiting for the Messiah, even though the Messiah has already come. And mind you, Jews are still waiting for that Messiah right now. But these Jews are waiting for the Messiah who would come and rebuild the temple. But little did they know that Jesus Christ is the true temple. And the church, by virtue of faith, are part of that temple. He, adds, he says in Matthew twelve six, Jesus says, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. Or in John 4, when the Samaritan woman asked Jesus, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. As you know, Samaritans and, and Jews had two different places of worship, one on Mount Gerizim and the mountain on Jerusalem, the temple. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. So what Jesus is doing here at the Feast of Dedication, he is, he, is, he is identifying himself with the temple. And he's saying that I am the temple. That Jesus is saying, you don't have to look for a temple, but the real bridge between God and man has arrived. I am here. That's exactly what he did on the cross. Jesus took holy God, he took sinful man, and he reconciled them back together. Jesus, again, is fulfilling prophecy. And John ends verse 22, as you'll see, with a very interesting statement. It was winter. It was winter. I don't think that John was just writing that for us to know the weather at the time. But I believe this carries a double meaning. It was not winter only on the calendar, but it was winter spiritually. At that time, it was winter spiritually. It was a very dark time. It was a very cold time. Chapter 10 marks the close of Jesus' earthly ministry. And from here on out, Jesus will be preparing not only himself, but his disciples for his death. That will take place in three months. It was truly winter. The Jews' hatred toward Christ began to reach a boiling point. And their hearts toward him grew colder by the day. A.W. Pink notes, So far as we are concerned, the words of Jeremiah apply with direct and solemn force. The harvest has passed, the summer has ended, and we are not saved. From, then on, from, from them there, these Jews, it was nothing but an endless winter for them. It was an endless, cold, dark winter, and their hearts are now ready to take action. And in three months, like I said, the word who became flesh will be crucified. Verse 24, so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. So the Jews literally circle 
around Jesus. Jesus in the middle, and these Jews circle around him. And they say it in such a sarcastic way, like they want to know. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. But the Jews weren't looking for an answer here. Their minds have already been made up. They said that no prophet comes out of Galilee. They said that no good thing can come out of Nazareth. They mocked him for being from Bethlehem. They mocked him for the way he was born. They mocked him because he was a carpenter's son. They knew very well who Jesus was. And they knew very well what they wanted to do with him. They've already tried to kill him three times. When he said, before Abraham was, I am. They pick up stones to try to kill him. They knew exactly who he claimed to be. But isn't it interesting how Jesus never plainly tells these Jews who he is? Even when a leader of the Sanhedrin, Nicodemus, came to him at night, Jesus still didn't tell him plainly who he was. But he chooses to reveal himself, he chooses to reveal his messiahship to the unlikely of candidates. First to his disciples, and they were all crazy. Then to the Samaritans, who had no dealing with Jews. Then to a blind beggar. Then he plainly revealed himself to the he never plainly revealed himself to the multitudes or religious leaders. Plainly here does not refer to in plain language, or doesn't refer to easily understood. But here these Jews are saying, Won't you tell us openly about who you are? Won't you tell us boldly who you are, unreservedly, without mystery? So Jesus says in verse twenty five, I told you already. I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. The Lord had told them that he was the Son of Man, and, the Father, and that the Father had given him authority to execute just judgment, John 5.27. He had told them that he was the one whom Moses wrote about. He had told them that he was the living bread, which had come down from heaven. He had told them that Abraham rejoiced to see his day. But see, the Jews didn't want to hear that. The Jews didn't want to hear parables. The Jews didn't want to hear figures of speech. They wanted Jesus to tell them straight up, are you the Messiah? Yes or no? But here, Jesus not only tells these people that he's the Messiah, he actually takes it a step further. He always takes it a step further. Jesus says in verse 25, The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. So not only do I claim to be God, but the works that I do validate my claims that I am God. J.C. Ryle notes, Jesus carefully reminds the Jews that he does not act independently of his Father, but in entire harmony and unity with him. So what is Jesus doing here? He's again making another claim of his deity. These Jews want to know, are you the Messiah? But instead, Jesus takes it a step further, and he equals himself with the Father once again. The very thing that they hate the most. This is the sort of life that, that Jesus is living throughout his ministry, that he's encountering during his ministry. He would constantly defend who he is, in light of the Jews' presuppositions and unarticulated conclusions, and never once did the Jews believe. And the reason why they don't believe is given to us in verse 26. Jesus says, But you do not believe, because you are not among my sheep. What an amazing statement. But also, what an amazing rebuke that is. You don't believe me because you're not of my own. You're not chosen. Very reminiscent of what Jesus says in Matthew 25, 11, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. Why don't these Jews believe? Because they are not among the elect. 
This verse totally refutes the myth that Jesus is hoping and wishing and wanting you to believe in him. And anyone that says that, point them to this verse here and tell them this story. Jesus doesn't say, Jews, you don't believe me, and I know you don't believe me. But don't worry, Jews, because I'm trying to persuade you. And in three months, hopefully, you will be there when I die on the cross. And hopefully, when I rise from the tomb, you will be there to say hello. Or you don't believe Jews because simply you don't want to believe. But I sure hope you believe. I'm really wishing you believe. And at this moment, I'm knocking at your door to believe. Jesus doesn't say any of those things. Jesus instead reveals to them the root of not only the Jews' unbelief, but everyone's unbelief who doesn't follow Christ. Jesus used the same type of language in John 8:47. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. This is not the humanity of Christ talking. This is the divinity of Christ talking. Jesus knew all those who were his. He knew which sheep were his. He knew which sheep were which. And he knew which sheep were sheep and ones that were goats. They don't believe because Jesus doesn't know them. And that's what it all comes down to. The question is, not do you know Christ, but does Christ know you? Paul tells us in Galatians 4.9, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. Before man can know God, God must know them. And this is the point Jesus is making in Matthew 7. On the days, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we, we, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, workers of lawlessness. So brothers and sisters, let us ask ourselves this question this morning. Am I known by God? If you are here this morning, if you are seated in these seats, then take advantage of the gift that God has granted to you. You could have slept in this morning. You could have watched the Cowboys lose or the Niners lose. But rather you didn't. And by God's providence and by His grace, you are here this morning. And maybe that's a sign that God is drawing you to Himself. If you're not a Christian this morning, as uh, one of my favorite ministers would say, Mark Dever, you're in the perfect place. And if if you want to hear about the gospel, talk to somebody uh, that is in this service, after, after service, and they'll be more than happy to explain the gospel to you. But if you are a Christian, let this time be a time of examination, careful thinking of your own spiritual walk. Am I known by God? Do I bear, like last week, do I bear the double mark? Am I hearing his voice and am I following him? These Jews weren't among the chosen that the Father had given to the Son before the foundation of the world. Now, and and let me say this. Don't let this verse be the hang-up of your evangelism. Because God chooses those who will be saved, don't let that be your biggest hang-up in preaching and spreading the gospel. Because for one, you're not God. And number two, you don't know who the elect are. I pray that's that's some encouragement to you. But from now, from, from verses 27 to 29... Jesus gives us some of the most encouraging words for those who are his. Verse 27 to 29 reads, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. Now, I expound on these verses last week, but let me remind you that if you are ever in doubt in God's promises... I pray that verses like this will 
ease and comfort your wearied soul. Paul expounds on this in Romans 8, 29 and 30. We know this as the golden chain of redemption. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Amen. Don't take this for granted. Right. Don't take verses like this for granted. Amen. From God knowing you yeah. to God glorifying you, we have the promise that in between those times, God is keeping you safe in his hands. That's amazing. To people who don't deserve anything. And if you want more, listen to last week's sermon. But why can Jesus make such a bold claim like that? Why can he say things like that? Verse 30 gives us our answer. I and the Father are one. Jesus, again, is equaling himself with the Father. He's not saying that he and God are one in the sense that, that they are homeboys or they are friends. You know, sometimes you, know, you call your, your best friend or whoever, man, me and him, we're like this. Or me and her, we're like this. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Christ is not saying that he and the Father are the same person because that would destroy the doctrine of the Trinity. The oneness that Jesus is claiming is not one in theological agreement. But what he meant was, Jesus and the Father, the Son and the Father, are one in essence, one in nature, one in power, one in will, and one in operation. And this is the constant teaching in Scripture, that Jesus is God. This is not some new theme in the book of John. This is not some new development in the book of John. But in fact, the book of John begins highlighting the deity of Christ. As you remember, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was nothing that was made. The whole purpose of John writing this gospel is that you may believe that Jesus is not only the Messiah, but is the Son of God. And that term, Son of God, refers to not Jesus being a created being, but Jesus being God. Verse 28 of John 10 says, Jesus says concerning his sheep, I give them eternal life. So if Jesus is just another mere man or a mere mortal or, or a mere uh, great moralist or a great prophet, then why can he say, I give life? If you think about that statement, only God is the source of life. And Jesus also says that no one will snatch them out of my hand. And then he uses the same language about his father. No one's able to snatch them out of my father's hand. This is Jesus' brothers and sisters. This is God. Amen. This is the Jesus Christ that you serve. Yes. Not the homeboy Jesus. Not the best friend Jesus. Yes. But the Jesus of the Bible, yes. which declares that he is God. Amen. This again is Jesus defending his divine nature. Yes. And let me say this. Don't ever be comfortable which is knowing the simple truth that, yes, Jesus is God. Don't ever be comfortable with that. But always look for more. Dig deeper into what this actually means and what the implications of this actually are. I challenge you this morning to look deeper into the personal work of Christ, His humanity, but also His divinity. I mean, we go the extra mile in learning what our husband, our wife, or our, our, our girlfriend, our boyfriend, what their favorite things are and who they are. How much more should we give attention to the Word who became flesh? Jesus, again, is defending who He is. Now let's look at the Jews denying Jesus' deity. Verse 31, the Jews pick up stones again to stone Him. Jesus answered him, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? This is exactly what happened in John 8, verse 58. Jesus said to him, to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, 
was born, I am. And what do they do? They pick up stones and they try to kill him. However, the same word picked up in verse 59 of John chapter 8 is not the same meaning that this word picked up is in John 10 verse 31. Instead, in verse 31, in our passage, the word picked up translates to carried. As you know, the New Testament is written in Greek. And some of these words translate different. So when it says that the Jews picked up stones, instead it actually carried stones with them. Like one would carry a loaded gun. This is the hatred that the Jews have toward Jesus. This is the murderous intentions that has been building up within the Jews toward Jesus. That at a drop of a dime, they are ready and they are willing to kill him. Verse 32 reads, Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews this whole time have been trying to get Jesus caught up in a lie. In order that they might put Jesus in a situation where he would say something... And in order, by that, they will put him on trial. So they have a reason now to kill him. This is what they've been doing this whole time. But here, we see Jesus reversing the order. And he puts them on trial. Jesus saying, for which good thing are you stoning me for? Jesus sees the stones, and he asks them a very simple, basic question. Are you stoning me for turning water into wine? Are you stoning me for saving an entire Samaritan village? Are you stoning me for healing the nobleman's son? Or what about healing a man who's been sick for 38 years at the pool of Bethesda? Do you want to stone me for feeding 5,000 men, including their women and children, with only five loaves of bread and two fish? Or do you want to kill me for healing a man who's been blind since birth? Pick one of those and cast the first stone. And I can imagine... Just how, how Pastor and, uh, gave us that great imagery of, of that woman caught in adultery. You remember that? And, and Jesus says, whoever has not sinned, cast the first stone. And one by one, they're casting their stones. I can imagine the same thing's happening here. That they're not probably dropping their stones, but they're probably like, uh, uh, Jesus is not only asking them a question that they can't answer, but he's putting them on trial. And notice how Jesus says, I have shown you many good works from the Father. Meaning that these are not even my works that I'm doing. But this is the Father's work. So be careful before you stone me, because I'm not doing any of this in my name. But I'm doing my Father's work. Let's notice in verse 33 how stuck the Jews are. The Jews answered him, It's not for good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. These Jews at that time were probably saying, Okay, we're not going to stone you for a good work. You're doing many good things. And we realize that. But, but you're a man. And you call yourself God. In the, in the Mosaic law, that's blasphemy. You ought to be stoned. This is why the Jews have been so angry with Jesus this whole time. That this man has been claiming that he is God. John 5, 17, Jesus says, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking to kill him even more. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling himself God. Making himself equal with the Father. These Jews hated Jesus. And I think for a large part, they hated him because he didn't look like the Messiah. Let alone, he didn't look like God. But also, Jesus does the very thing that everyone hates about Jesus. And he exposes their sin. That's the main reason why they hated Jesus. He exposed their hypocrisy. He exposed their corruption. He called them vipers. And he even said... To put the cherry on top, your father is the devil. Yes. <laughs> so, these Jews, these Pharisees, they weren't on the Jesus fan club. 
However, this rejection of Jesus is nothing new. But of course, this was prophesied in Isaiah 53, where it says that Jesus was to be despised and to be rejected by men, insomuch that they would hide their face from him, and they would esteem him not. Jesus was not liked by these men. Now in verse 34, as we read, Jesus does something only God can do. He takes their reason of why the Jews want to kill him, and then he flips it back on them. Verse 34 to 38, Jesus answered them, Isn't that written in your law? I said that you are gods. If you called them gods to whom the word of God came, the scripture cannot be broken. And we can do a whole sermon on that verse alone. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am the Father. Now, Jesus here, and you have to follow the argument to understand Jesus here is referring back to the Old Testament to make his point. And the passage that Jesus is referencing is Psalm 82. So if you want, you can turn to Psalm 82. That might help you. Psalm 82 reads, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly? And show partiality to the wicked. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right and the afflicted of the destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. Sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, and you shall inherit all the nations. So Psalms 82 is a judgment by God on the rulers of Israel. This is a judgment psalm. Now, in that time period, God appointed judges to solve problems and to help people. And these judges would hold the positions of authority, and they would rule over the people. And the people would view them as gods. Gods. The problem that we see in Psalm 82 is that these judges who were supposed to help the people were actually hurting the people. They were corrupt judges. They were wicked judges. And that's why we see in verses 1 through 5 in Psalm 82, God is judging these evil men because of what they are doing. Verse 6, Jesus, God says, I say you are gods, sons of the Most High. Now, church, I don't know if you knew this by now, but you are little gods. You see, that's what Joyce Meyer or T.D. Jakes would have said. And all of us would have ran around, and we would have told that to our next-door neighbor, and we would have clapped our hands. But that's not what God is saying here. Notice the word gods is not capitalized. Small g. Not a big g. Small g. And there's no such thing as a little god. As God will defend that in this, in this verse, in this passage, God says, you are gods. Why are you gods? Because you are the representatives of the one true God. You are God's agents in the world. You are the sons of the Most High, and I have given you authority, and you receive my word. You are gods in the sense that people perceive you to be gods. But don't get it confused, and don't get it twisted, you still are mortal men. How can I say that? God makes it plain in verse 7. Nevertheless, you shall die like men and fall like any priest, a prince. 
little gods don't die, right? Little gods are not mortal men. These judges are to remember that even though they are representing God in this world, they are mortal. And they must, and they will give an account eventually to how they use their authority. Now let's look at how Jesus uses this passage. Jesus had just claimed to be the Son of God and to be equal with God. The unbelieving Jews responded by charging Jesus with blasphemy, saying that he is a mere man and he claimed to be God. Jesus then quotes Isaiah, I mean Psalms 82.6, reminding the Jews that the law or the scriptures refer to mere men, men of authority, men of power as gods. Jesus' point is, you charge me with blasphemy based on the title that I give myself, Son of God, yet your own scriptures apply the same term to wicked, evil judges who are mere men. If those who held a divine appointed office, if they can be considered, if they can be considered gods, then why are you so angry with me? With me claiming that I am God. And I normally don't do this, but raise your hand if you are still confused. Glory be to God. Jesus saying, why, why are you tripping on me? In your own scriptures, God called men gods, little gods. But that's not the case here. God in the flesh has arrived. Psalm 82 was a judgment against wicked judges. That was the whole context of Psalm 82. Jesus is saying his accusers are those Jews who think in their own right that they are gods. The judges who are condemned in Psalms 82, Jesus is saying you are those same judges that God is speaking of in Psalm 82. What kind of judges were they? They're unrighteous judges. And Jesus is calling these false accusers false judges. This, this goes perfectly back to the shepherd and his sheep. And the bad shepherd and the hireling. The ones who don't care for the sheep. The ones who don't care if a lion comes in and takes the sheep. And they knew exactly what he was saying. That is why in verse 39, it says, again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. What do we take from these nine verses? Well, we see the hatred that the Jews have toward Jesus, that their minds have already been made up of who he is, and they are blinded by their sin and their unbelief. This is no different from the world that we live in today. The thought of Jesus being the only way to heaven The thought of Jesus being God is now comical and laughable to everyone. Many don't even consider who they call now baby Jesus. Disrespect is all around us. To be God, unbelief is all around us. It was truly winter at this time in Jesus' life. But oh, how much colder has winter gotten in the world that we live in today. I've been asked before, what's the use of evangelism? Rarely anyone gets saved when you go out. What's the use of sharing the gospel if everyone is so hard-hearted toward Christ? I can even remember the frustration of a dear brother of mine when we were together at the marketplace sharing the gospel and him saying, I just don't get it. I can't handle all this unbelief. Our downfall, brothers and sisters, is not people's unbelief. And our hang-up for evangelism shouldn't be that people don't believe. It shouldn't be that people are hostile toward Christianity. But our hope is what Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. If we think about the life of Christ... He knew that many wouldn't believe in his name. 
But he also knew that there were a people who had been chosen and that had been given to him who would bow their knee to him and would worship him. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Jesus went into the same hostile environment that you and I go into every single day. And the promise and the hope that he had was, when my word goes forth, it is never returned in vain. But my sheep will hear me and they will come. That's a great promise for us when we go into our work environment, when we go out to the streets and evangelize, when we talk to our next door neighbor, our brothers and sisters, or even our friends, that Christ's sheep will hear his voice. That's a great comfort for me because I know that I don't have to do cartwheels to to share the gospel. And I don't have to plead and get on my knees for them to come. But I give the gospel and I let God be God. Let's now look at the last point. The people defend, affirm Christ's deity. Verse 40 to verse 42. He went on again across the Jordan to a place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him. And he said, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. What a great way to end this wonderful chapter that, quite honestly, we could spend five more months on. As we know, it was John the Baptist who said when he saw Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he whom I said after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. These are the people who confess the same thing Peter said when Jesus asked him, Who do you say that I am? You are the Messiah. These are the same people who said, like Thomas, when he touched the side of the risen Christ, My Lord and my God. These are the same people that have proclaimed the name of Christ as you have this morning. Jesus leaves his own people in Jerusalem where he has been ridiculed and threatened only to cross the Jordan to be embraced and to be loved by sheep who have been waiting for their shepherd. What do we take away from John chapter 10? Jesus is the good shepherd. And as the good shepherd, he knows his sheep. He loves his sheep. He lays down his life for the sheep. He guards the sheep. He protects the sheep. He cares for the sheep. He gives the sheep eternal life. And he keeps the sheep safe forever in his hands. May you stand with me. We hope you were edified and encouraged by the message. Thank you once again for taking the time to listen. Please feel free to share with your friends and relatives on what you heard today. For more sermons, please visit www.rbcbakersfield.org. Thank you and God bless.